Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the RacingNews365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Michael Butterworth and I'm joined as usual by Dieter Renken, Editorial Director of Racing News 365. Dieter, as ever, welcome to the show. Now, we'll get to talking about last weekend's Italian Grand Prix in just a moment. But before we do that, for the benefit of our listeners, we're recording this podcast at about 5.30pm Central European time on the Monday after the race. And uh, Williams just released uh, a couple of hours or so ago, released a statement on Alexander Albon, who, of course, had to miss the race uh, after being laid low with appendicitis. The statement, I'll read some excerpts from it now. It reads, Alex suffered with unexpected post-operative anaesthetic complications, which led to respiratory failure. He was transferred to intensive care for support. He made excellent progress overnight and was able to be removed from mechanical ventilation yesterday morning. He has now been transferred to a general ward and is expected to return home tomorrow. There were no other complications. So that's the statement from Williams and obviously very, very surprising and very shocking news to read after what I think we all thought was a fairly routine procedure there. And of course, we all we all wish uh, Alex Albon the very, very best for a very uh, good and very speedy recovery. But uh, Dieter, very surprising news and certainly not something that we would have wanted to hear today. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, we were all sort of overjoyed for for Nick DeFries when he got the call up. But, you know, the uh, the statement from Williams made it sound as, a, as you say, a routine, a routine kind of operation or procedure. And uh, it looks as though there was a turn for the worse. I'm actually hearing from the FIA that the, um, the FIA medical experts have gotten involved. That, of course, is both good and bad news. Bad news, and let's, let's suspend to that first, because it does mean that it appears as though it's a bit more than routine uh, good news of course because the you know the FIA have got absolutely the best specialists in the, in the medical field top class top class um, physicians and of course that is very good news for for Alex so we wish him all the best as you say uh, and you know let's just hope that he recovers as soon as possible or that he's able to take his place on the grid in Singapore well, the, the Williams statement said that he was expected to return home tomorrow. So that would be Tuesday, all things being well. Singapore obviously doesn't happen for another two and a half, three weeks or so. But it's a very, very physically demanding race. Uh, very, very hot and humid conditions and frequently runs to the or close to the two hour limit. And I, I think if this condition is serious, you have to question whether he's going to be able to take to the grid in Singapore. Well, absolutely, which is why I said I sincerely hope that he can. Uh, because obviously we wish him the best. But of course, uh, you know, who knows? And let's also not forget, Michael, we can add to that that the Singapore circuit has some incredibly high G-forces because of the braking from very high speeds down to sort of hairpin and and 90-degree corners. And then, of course, it's also a pretty bumpy circuit with a lot of curbing. And, you know, if you just had a surgical procedure, then, you know, that, that's that's another complication. So uh, from, from that perspective, I sincerely hope he makes it. But if he doesn't, I could certainly understand it. Wish him all the best. And, uh, you know, who knows? It, it may give uh, Nick de Vries another call up to... to Add to the one that he had in Monza, where in the absence of poor old Alex, uh, Nick performed absolutely stupendously. It's the only phrase term that I can use. You know, he did, in my opinion, a perfect job for somebody who got shoehorned in Saturday morning, went out and qualified, made it into Q2, um, and then scored two points on his debut. Absolutely fantastic uh, performance from Nick. And let's also not forget that on Friday, he'd driven the Aston Martin. Yes, it's got the same sort of 
tyres because they're Pirellis. Yes, it's got the same sort of power unit because it's it's Mercedes, but ultimately it's a completely different concept car. So there was Nick uh, driving uh, one particular type of car with certain characteristics on Friday and then getting shoehorned into a completely different car on Saturday and and uh, two or three hours later qualifying in, in Q2. Yeah, it was amazing stuff and uh, quite telling, I thought, that uh, he managed to out-qualify and then finish in the points ahead of Nicholas Latifi, who is still without a point so far this season in the other Williams. And now Nick DeVries is one of those drivers that's been talked about uh, for a potential race seat, maybe with Williams, maybe somewhere else for 2023. But uh, he's absolutely done his chances of that. No harm with his performance at Monza, has he? Not at all, not at all. In fact, uh, you know, when I was talking to a couple of team bosses after the race yesterday, they were all saying that that if uh, Nick did not get a permanent drive for next year, uh, then it would be a travesty. And in fact, some of the team bosses I spoke to who don't yet have... uh, both cockpits filled, uh, were sort of hinting very, very strongly that there could be a tug of love over Nick DeFries. Well, another driver who's um, looking for a seat for next year is the newly crowned F2 champion, Felipe Drugovic. Um, and it's just been announced that he's signed for Aston Martin's nascent young driver program. Now, it's pretty unlikely he's going to be in a seat next year. We know that uh, Fernando Alonso is in for what was called a multi-year deal. And I think we can assume that Lance Stroll is in that seat for as long as he wants it or as long as his dad continues to own the team. So what are his chances of, of eventually making it into an F1 seat? What's the best that Felipe Dragovic can hope for now? Well, basically the same as, as Nick de Vries could, could hope for this year, which is to do some Friday performances. Let's not forget that teams are committed to doing at least two Friday morning sessions with rookies. Um, Felipe would, would obviously be the logical person to, to insert into the car for those two. And, you know, who knows if, if Fernando or, uh, or Lance in some way uh, are unable to take the start or, or participate during a race weekend, uh, then obviously he'd be on standby to get into there and if he can do the sort of job that Nick de Vries did uh, then who knows Yeah, uh, he, he could be on somebody's radar for the following season or I would imagine the contract would be phrased in such a way that if he got a drive call up as a Opposed to a reserve or third driver call-up, that uh, you know the, the the team would have to release him. There may be some compensation, but they would certainly need to release him. Certainly, if I were his manager, I would have insisted on such a clause. So you know, this is obviously a stepping stone. Let's not forget that the Formula Two champion may not participate in that series again. Therefore, Felipe basically had no choice. It was either accepting a reserve driver role in Formula One, alternately looking at some other category like Indy car or sports cars he's obviously as f2 champion got his his sights set very firmly on formula one so to me that's a logical move i do believe they spoke to various other teams um and uh so he settled for aston martin good luck to him and i wish him all the best are you surprised that there hasn't been more interest in him for a race seat in 2023? It, it looks like we've got quite a volatile driver market. We know that at least three of the teams are not going to have the same lineups next year that they had this year. It looks like maybe a few more teams would be chopping and changing as well. Are you surprised that there's not been much chatter about Drogovic throughout the course of the year? Well, I am, yes, because I know a fair amount about his career. 
but uh, but equally, I, I know how fickle the uh, the F1 paddock can be, and you know the sort of stuff that I that I've heard when I've asked about uh, Felipe is ah, um, oh, but don't forget he's in his third year. You know uh, that that proves that he's not a natural champion, as though everybody expects everybody to to win in his first season, and you know it's just not going to happen particularly in a championship where you have spare cars however um depending on the budget of the teams depending on the budget of the driver uh they they do testing here or there or they do all sorts of other championships and you know keep their eye in and felipe has done his season very very much on on a family budget and so you know there hasn't been that much money to throw around i think he's done a sterling job within the constraints of his budget but of course, out there, everybody just looks at the numbers. He's in his third year, therefore he can't be any good. Well, I don't buy into that because I can show you drivers who, who are probably into their 10th year in Formula 1. They haven't won a championship, but no, nobody dare say, well, he's obviously no good. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Italian Grand Prix now. Uh, Max Verstappen, starting from seventh on the grid, uh, managing to pass Charles Leclerc, who did two stops. Verstappen only did one, but managed to keep the gap, taking his 11th Grand Prix win of 2022 and carrying on his way, surely, to his second championship in a row. How did you enjoy the race at Monza? Um, I certainly enjoyed it. I thought it was fascinating. I went out to to the sort of first uh, turn complex uh, for the first five or six laps. Some wonderful racing through there. Some argy bargy. Uh, you know, I was I was amazed, frankly, at at some of the antics of the drivers as they either tried to overtake or defend. Uh, there was some very robust driving, and I think this this occurred throughout the race. Uh, when I say all all laps until sort of five laps from the end when we had that, that um, the safety car. Uh, for the rest, I thought it was very, very good. I thought it was nip and tuck, cat and mouse kind of stuff. Uh, you know, as you said, uh, Charles came in for a second stop. Max didn't. Uh, but let's not forget that uh, at that stage, I don't believe that, that Ferrari were banking on the sort of safety car that we did have. Um, yeah, everybody points fingers at, at Ferrari, and frankly, I, I, I can't go along with that. Yes, there have been some, some wrong on the, on the face of it calls, but equally, they were the calls were made with the data available at the time. I don't believe that anybody on the Ferrari pit wall stands there and says, OK, let's just call another pit stop because I feel like it. Yeah, there is a reason for it. And uh, occasionally it's, it's, it's gone against them, yes. But, you know, the funny thing, as Carlos Sainz said the other day, when a, a call does go for them, nobody says, oh, that was a fantastic call by, by Ferrari. And I think this is the sort of pressure they're under. If anybody else made the sort of calls that they've made, I don't think they'd get half the criticism that Ferrari do, particularly not in Monza. Well, Leclerc obviously made two stops when Verstappen made only the one. Leclerc coming in on lap 12 when the virtual safety car came out to clear Sebastian Vettel's Aston Martin. Was it a case that whatever Red Bull, whatever Ferrari did, Max Verstappen would still have won the race at Monza? Because it just seemed, especially in that second stint when Leclerc was on those younger, softer tyres, he just wasn't able to close up nearly by the amount he needed to in order to challenge Verstappen for the win. Verstappen just seemed to have too much pace in hand on the, on the Sunday. You make a very good point there, Michael, and I think that's also something that we should consider when we look at the Ferrari strategies. If you just copy what the obviously fastest combination is going to do, you're not going to beat them. So Ferrari have got to go slightly left field and hope that... Uh, that effectively they're banking on they couldn't be worse off than they are but they may be a lot better off 
And this is also, you know, the, the, the basis for some of their calls. Well, you mentioned briefly the uh, the safety car that we had right at the end. Daniel Ricciardo retired five or six laps from the end. Uh, the safety car came out, but marshals weren't able to clear that car in time for a restart. So we ended up with that really unsatisfactory situation where the race finished under the safety car. It didn't really have a, a significant bearing on the final results, but obviously nobody wants to see a safety car finish. And the memories of Abu Dhabi last year, very much uppermost in everybody's minds, not least probably in the FIA's minds. Should they have red flagged it to give us a chance of, uh, you know, a sprint finish like we had in Baku last year, for example? Well, you know, the, Michael, this is, you know, the constant question. Do you red flag? Do you put a safety car? When do you put the safety car? What do you do, etc.? And, you know, it's not as though we uh, sort of been the first race that's been, been red flagged or safety card or whatever. You know, it happens all the time in motor racing. And, you know, fundamentally what we're looking at is a situation whereby, um, you know, this is motor racing. There is mechanical failure. There are cars out in the grid. There are accidents. And this does tend to happen full stop. And, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, it's a great pity it happened yesterday. But, uh, you know... <laughs> It's, it's going to happen, and people are aware of it, and fans should be aware of it. And I frankly, apart from p possibly them having uh, either deployed the safety car earlier, um, alternately, as you say, red flagged it. But if you red flag it, you're into all sorts of delays and all sorts of things. And, you know, at the moment, you have a situation where under the red flag, people can fix their cars, so everybody complains about that, or they change tyres, and everybody complains about that. There is a constant complaint in Formula One about whatever decisions are taken by whoever, whenever. It's that simple. You know, you, you're effectively damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, and you're damned if you do both of them at the same time, too. Well, there was also a bit of complaining before the race because uh, on the Saturday or over the course of the weekend, it was revealed that a lot of drivers would be uh, taking grid penalties uh, for excessive component usage. And uh, we ended up with this situation on Saturday where Max Verstappen finished the qualifying session in second place but was uh, subject to a five-place grid drop. But because some of the cars behind him were also due to take a grid drop, nobody seemed to be sure whether Verstappen was starting fourth or seventh, which doesn't point to a set of rules that's very easy to understand if even the teams can't agree where the various drivers are going to be starting. So how do we end up in this situation where nobody seems to know where someone's going to be starting on the grid? Well, I think, there, first of all, there are two, uh, two separate answers to this. The first answer is that assuming we maintain the grid penalty structure the way it is, the rules have got to be written in such a way that there is absolute clarity that, you know, within five minutes of qualifying finishing, people can sit down there with a calculator and abacus or whatever they want to use and work it out and say that is today's provisional grid. Then, of course, it could change tomorrow after Park Ferme, etc., but that's a separate issue. But fundamentally, you could then turn around and say that is the provisional grid. You could do that within a couple of seconds of, of, the, um, of the flag. Now, um, so that's the one thing. The problem is that the regulations themselves are written in such a way that they are slightly ambiguous. Let's not forget, you tend to have this in law anyway, uh, which is why you need lawyers. You know, if it, was, if it was effectively an open and shut case, you wouldn't need lawyers and people that are supposed to be guilty would be guilty and people who are innocent would be found innocent.
Uh, but the problem is that it's interpretation of the rules of the regulations of the law that leads to this. Now, if the rules are clearly written, there is no room, wriggle room for interpretation, then we would know straight away, no problem. However, I do believe that the bigger question, the broader question, is should we at all have a penalty system the way that we do at the moment? And I question this. Yes, I accept the situation that, uh, you know, in order to, to penalize teams for using too many engines or whatever in the interest of cost saving, yes, one has to do something. And, you know, if you just made it a financial penalty, somebody like Mercedes would just pay what it costs and, you know, not really care about it. Um, we do have budget uh, budget caps coming on engines in the future. And, of course, that makes it even more difficult to, to control this. So uh, you can't have a financial penalty. So it's got to be some kind of sporting penalty. If you start adding points at the end of the year and say, well, you know, we're going to subtract 10 points for that engine change and 15 points for this one, and then we're going to take seven off for that gearbox change you did, it also gets pretty messy because at the end of the year, everybody turns around and says, well, he should have been champion, but he wasn't. So there'll be complaints about that. Now, one of my readers uh, sent me something which was uh, which I agree with, and I looked at it and I sort of formulated it slightly differently and, and I discussed it with Martin Brundle on um, on Saturday and I believe he was kind enough to mention it yesterday during the Sky broadcast and that is that fundamentally what we should be looking at is some form of a drive-through penalty. So if you qualify second, you start second but you then get a grid penalty or two, uh, sorry, a drive-through penalty or two drive-through penalties or whatever it is or a stop and go depending on the severity of the engine change so if it's engine and gearbox uh, maybe it's a, it's a drive-through with a 10-second stop at your at your box, and then you leave again. And the driver knows in advance that he has got to take this, and the team then played strategically. And everybody knows he's got to take it, but they don't know when he's going to take it. So there's an element of jeopardy to this. Equally, if the driver then does retire before he's taken it, then that's tough. You know, he's out of the race anyway. So although he hasn't taken the, the penalty, it hasn't affected him. And that way, I believe that we could have a situation where the grid is the provisional grid is known immediately after qualifying. Absolutely. Secondly, everybody knows there will be some form of drive through at some stage but they won't know when the driver will take it and it cannot be taken as part of a pit stop and uh, therefore you know uh, there's a sort of unknown factor as well and I think that would certainly add to the excitement. Well turning to off-track matters now uh, one of the big stories that emerged in recent days was uh, the much mooted Red Bull Porsche uh, partnership for 2026 would not take place. Porsche released a statement saying that uh, uh, Red Bull and Porsche would not team up uh, for the new generation of power units in 26. The Porsche statement, uh, what I thought was interesting, didn't specifically rule out joining Formula One. It just said that they wouldn't be joining with Red Bull. But uh, you wrote the other day that uh, this is not going to be the case and there are several reasons for that. What are they? Michael, I didn't actually say or write that they wouldn't enter in 2026. What I did say was that it was unlikely they would enter with their own power unit. In other words, a Porsche-built power unit. Um, that fundamentally, because if we have a look at the structure that was approved by the Porsche main board, it was as a joint venture with Red Bull, with each party owning 50% of this joint venture. Red Bull Technologies building the cars, the chassis, etc. Red Bull Racing them 
and Red Bull powertrains designing, developing, and operating these power units. And these would then say, for want of a better description, Porsche on the tappet cover and the airbox. And the cars would be entered as Red Bull Porsche. And that was the original structure. Um, and that is the structure that the Porsche main board and by extension the VW board gave um, their approval to. Now, if the joint venture has fallen apart, this raises questions about the uh, the approval and whether or not Red Bull would, uh, with a Porsche would need to obtain approval all over again. And this, of course, is a fairly lengthy process. The information that I have from somebody who uh, is in the know in all this did say to me that, yes, they would need to get approval all over again. Uh, That, I don't believe, can happen overnight. Secondly, Red Bull don't actually now have an engine program because the engine program was going to be the Red Bull engine program. So they would also need to go ahead and and, uh, start an engine program from scratch. Now, bear in mind that although we have around about... Uh, three three seasons through until the um, until the first race with the new power units, um, it would put Porsche very much on the back foot because everybody else is already working towards theirs. Whereas they don't even have dynamometers, they don't have a basic design, they don't have people in place. I know that Audi have have recruited people. I know that they have their engine program in place at Nuremberg in in Germany, just outside Ingolstadt. I know that Mercedes are already looking at it. I know that Red Bull have built a fully functioning V6 power unit to the new regulations. That's already running. So if Porsche start now, they're going to be about a year behind at least. Plus, they don't have any of the facilities, etc. Plus, they don't have board approval. And the real sticking point is they would have to sort all this by the 15th of October, which is the closing date for engine supplies to enter the 2026 championship. The reason why the FIA has done that is because from 2026, a budget cap will operate. And this budget cap means that people are restricted in terms of spend during the season, but also on facilities and and experimental stuff and development stuff, etc. So if Porsche don't enter by the 15th, it becomes very, very difficult for them to enter thereafter. And in fact, my information is they would require anonymity from Formula One, the FI, and all other teams, or certainly all other engine suppliers. I don't think that's going to be easy to get. So um, Porsche would have to put everything together within the next four weeks or so in order to enter, and I think that's a very, very big ask, particularly as they are now heading for a stock exchange listing, an IPO listed for the end of this year, and that's keeping the executives very, very busy. And apart from that, they've had a change of CEO at the very top of the VW group. Uh, Oliver Bloomer, who's the Porsche CEO, will also be taking on the VW Group CEO role. So he's got a doubly full table. We've got these time constraints. They have an IPO. And uh, based on that basis, I cannot see a Porsche engine being given the green light. What I can see, however, is uh, Porsche being told by the VW main board, if you do wish to enter Formula One, at this late stage, then you'll have to take an Audi engine and just change the name on the tappet cover. And that I could foresee happening, but then it would not be a Porsche in-house project. It would be a VW Group project with two different brands, one being Audi and one being Porsche, but basically the same engine. 
And so if the Red Bull Porsche deal is dead in the water, does that then point to the fact that Honda are going to extend or, or keep on with their partnership with Red Bull instead? Well, as I'd written in last week's diary, and I think I said it on this uh, podcast last week, um, Honda are uh, very, very proficient when it comes to hybrid technology, energy recovery, energy uh, deployment, uh, the, high, the full hybrid system. And, you know, I, I think it's a natural fit for, for Red Bull, who already have a year-old uh, concept engine, uh, which is up and running, a V6 to the new regulations. Uh, I think it's a natural fit for them to turn around and say to Honda, OK, why don't we team up? We've got the IC engine. You, Honda, have already uh, said that you don't intend uh, developing any further IC engines for, for production cars, but you did say you want to do battery and hybrid technologies. Therefore, this is a perfect fit for us. So I think that, yes, we could see Red Bull Honda continue, um, although the Honda element would be the, the hybrid element, which let's not forget for 26 goes up to 500 horsepower from the current 160 horsepower. So there is an additional incentive for Honda to get involved. Well, we've got uh, two or three weeks now, a little bit of a mini break until the next race in Singapore, because obviously the Russian Grand Prix isn't taking place. It feels like a good time for uh, any sort of deals to be announced. Are you expecting any major announcements over the next couple of weeks? Uh, yes, I am, actually. I'm expecting an Alpine driver announcement by the end of September. Um, I think the shortlist there is uh, Nick de Vries, uh, Jack Doohan, who the, the son of Mick Doohan, the, the MotoGP champion or former MotoGP champion. Um, and I think he's in with a strong chance there. I believe that Nico Hulkenberg is uh, potentially uh, going to drive for Haas next year. Um, so, the, the, you know, there are various uh, moves afoot. There are fundamentally four seats available or four unconfirmed seats at the moment. One at Sauber, I believe that uh, Guan Yu Zhou is a shoe in there. Uh, then we have one seat at Alpine, we have one at Haas, and we have one at Williams. And I think that certainly uh, one or two of those four will make some form of announcement before Singapore. Well, we're nearly out of time now, but one last point before we go. In addition to all the drivers and teams, there's also uh, the calendar. We, we need to know what the 2023 calendar is going to look like. Are we going to hear any news on that in the coming weeks? Uh, my information from teams and promoters that I've spoken to recently is that it will probably be finalised during the course of this week and that we can look forward to some form of, when I say provisional, it will be a calendar in which the dates are all agreed, but it's still provisional because it requires FIA World Motorsport Council ratification and that will happen on, I believe, the 9th of October. Uh, so I believe that what we will have is some form of calendar next week. The date's fundamentally fixed and firm. Uh, but just awaiting final approval from the FIA. And I think that we could possibly look at Monday or Tuesday next week for that one, Michael. Well, Dieter, as ever, thank you very much for your insight. And uh, we'll be hearing from you again at some point before the Singapore Grand Prix. Uh, yes, absolutely, Michael. Um, again, one of this has been one of those peculiar kind of podcasts uh, brought to you from my car, parked this time in, in Torino. Um, but it's, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to talking to you again on a podcast before the Singapore Grand Prix. Yeah, let's just, let's just really wish Alex uh, Albon all the best. And if you'd like to hear more of Dieter's insights, you can follow him on Twitter at RacingLines. 
and don't miss Dieter's diaries from F1 race weekends, which are published regularly on the RacingNews365.com website. That's it for this edition of the RacingNews365.com podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back very soon indeed.